Good morning. Universal Children's Day is celebrated annually on the 20th of November. The goal of Universal Children's Day is to improve child welfare worldwide, promote and celebrate children's rights, and promote togetherness and awareness amongst all children. Initially launched in 1954, Universal Children's Day sets out a number of children's rights, such as the right to be protected from violence and discrimination, and the right to life, health and education. We're very proud to be joined by Ngar, who's a very good colleague of mine. And Ngar joined Women and Men Against Child Abuse in 2016 in the role of Advocacy Manager. Her roles include the day-to-day case management and monitoring of cases referred to WEMACA. And prior to COVID-19, this included court attendance and monitoring. I just want to add, we were at court yesterday, so it now again includes court attendance and monitoring. And Guy, as you know, is extremely passionate about her role and allows her to give a voice to children who are fighting a battle that no child should ever have to fight. These children are impacted by the most heinous acts perpetrated on them by adults who should protect them. And I said to Ngai yesterday, you know, the reason we go into these dark places is that because people live there. So welcome, Ngai. Thank you very much to you both. Um, thank you for having me. So Ngai, just as a start of a di- the start of the discussion, uh, this is one of those jobs where, that people choose where very often people say to you, uh, I could not possibly do your job. Absolutely. So what is it that led you on this path to sort of go into these very dark places where children are? You mentioned that people choose. I think working in the space that we work, it is not something you choose. It is something that chooses you because it resonates with something within yourself that you never want to see happening to another child. And I honestly believe that each and every one of us has got a responsibility to extend the strength that you have to somebody whose strength has been stripped from them. And as a mother, because you are also a mom of a young child, how does it affect the way you see parenting? So I I put the introduction that one of the things that I observed just yesterday was play. I took my child to a play area. Because of COVID, she's been sitting in the house between four walls. And just the liberation that she had, being able to run around, being able to see other children, is something that I had to imagine. I have got the privilege of taking her there. As a parent, I am conscious of what I allow her to be able to have access to, rather than what I protect her from. Mm. So I took that initiative to always get her where she can socialize with children. And I think that is a very good starting point because the Declaration on the Rights of Children also mentions play as one of the things that children should be allowed access to. And so when you are a parent, my child is three, play is the only thing that she knows from peekaboo to hide and seek with covered eyes. Um, That imagination is so essential for her mental development going forward. And I think every parent should be able to facilitate that foundation. When my child has got a happy place, at three years old, happy place is all that she knows. So you need to be conscious to facilitate happy place through the tone of your voice, through what you allow her to see, through the efforts that you also respond as a parent. So I'm conscious, firstly, how I speak to her, but also how I listen to her. I grew up in an era where we were seen and not heard. 
not encouraged to speak not because of my parents but because society commanded that so i think the first thing towards parenting is your child is a human being they are a person and luke you mentioned to me that when you see a three-year-old a year is a third of their life. Mm -hmm. That is a very long time. So I've had to, for the last three years, be very active to what can I put into each third that becomes a quarter, that becomes a fifth of her life. So every parent should be very, very conscious. You don't go through parenting. You experience parenting. You listen to your child. Every day should be a learning opportunity. I think I love what you're saying. I love that you said what my child has access to rather than what I need to protect my child from. And I think languaging, and, and this is something that I've learned so much from Wamika and from Luke, is essential. You spoke about when you were young, children were seen and not heard. Similarly, um, children were also told, oh, go and give uncle so-and-so a hug or give auntie so-and-so a hug. And not really picking up on the cues where the child didn't actually want to hug Uncle So-and-so or kiss Auntie So-and-so. And it is so much about that listening to our children and not forcing them into positions where they are uncomfortable. So how do we raise our children? Previously, it was that is the polite thing to do. So instead of just being the polite thing to do, to really listening to our kids and recognizing their rights in that regard. You know, I think I have been so fortunate because, Luke, you have taught me about no. When children are growing up, we don't teach our children how to say no. Adults, you listen to adults. And so I think the first starting point, if you as an adult are not going to go and kiss Uncle Jonathan because you don't like Uncle Jonathan, why do you expect your child to go and kiss Uncle Jonathan? In a social context, you control who you allow into your space. So the first thing is to allow your child to be able to have that same control. So I always say, because we come from different backgrounds, there are things like politeness that are defined by culture and your cultural and historical narrative. And those are the things that we need to begin to debunk. Culture is fluid. It is not supposed to be stagnant. It is supposed to grow with society and evolve as we evolve. And we have so much access to resources. The internet is galore. And I think the responsibility of organizations such as Women and Men Against Child Abuse and individuals like us is how do we then disseminate what we have access to in terms of knowledge to people in grassroots communities. I did mention a discourse of social innovation which is basically go into the communities and hear from them. What do you need? I come from a vantage point in four ways. I have got access to internet. I have got access to education. I have got a partner. I have got multiracial engagements. I have got so much that informs how I respond towards children and crisis situations. And a lot of the reality of South Africans is they don't have that but we need to move that knowledge gap and we need to bridge it and bring it closer together and that's the only way we're going to be able to speak into the language that is currently harming our children mm -hmm. well i think that's all ex extremely profound i think the idea of, of collectiveness you know we, we bandy about words like ubuntu and there's there's a real sense in the work that you and i do is that 
that is often very lacking. And I think you've highlighted a lot of the reasons why. Because we can be very sort of judgmental and blaming of parents who don't engage in what we consider as privileged people appropriate ways. However, I think what, what I would like you to just sort of help us think about in your advocacy role is that there seems to be, number one, this dichotomy in our law between the fact that if people hurt children sexually, we've all got to go and we've got to report it, and we've got to report it to the police, we must do so immediately. But when it comes to things like physical abuse and the big debate around corporal punishment at the moment and things like neglect, it only is about professionals who need to report. So what are you and Wemaker doing in terms of sort of fighting to have all harms to children equally recognized? That is an excellent question. And I think we see it day to day when we go to court. If we are not fighting for one thing, it's another thing. We are not fighting for the state resources that are there to protect children are malfunctioning. We are now fighting for the person who is handling um, the case involving children. So what we need to do is, you know what, legislation is informed by what is written, but it is acted out by people. We are talking about the judgment that we've been discussing in terms of um, precedent-setting judgments. And what we are learning from that is the discretion is on the person who is going to deliver the judgment and the sentence. And that's one thing. That is very important because it shows us that the person who has received a case involving physical abuse, for example, understands that it is equally as damaging to the child as sexual abuse. And in the three cases we've worked on, these children are dead. And so that's what we need to do. It is an issue for me personally um, of sensitizing and desensitizing. People have normalized certain things in their day to day. And that's where we need to start. We cannot rely on legislation. If I see nothing wrong with physical abuse, if I don't see anything wrong with smacking my child, I am not going to be outraged when a case comes before me as a prosecutor and this child has been beaten over the head. I can easily use what I know. Again, it call, it goes back to culture. So we as an organization have been calling to, for amendments to Section 110 of the Children's Act, particularly subsection 2. Subsection 1 says that it is a mandatory obligation if you are in certain professions. Those professions are listed. We know that there is going to be a further amendment that just extends who, if, who falls under that bracket. What about subsection 2? Why is it that if I see as a neighbor that the child who lives next door to me is neglected? Because, you know, another thing is we minimize. We minimize neglect because it's not a smack. But we need to consider this, the, the psychological impact this is going to have on children. And then from neglect, we look at the physical abuse from a smack. That's going to graduate to a fist. That's going to graduate to the use of a weapon. Why is it that the law distinguishes between the use of a fist and the use of an actual weapon to determine assault GBH? Why do we do that? Because the impact of it, and I think what we need to do is to take a multidisciplinary approach. You remember, Luke, in the Coltonville case, mm -hmm. we had to get Dr. D. Muller to come and speak about the physiological damage that shaking a child, beating a child on the head has. And a lot of people didn't know this. Mm. People take their toddlers, they take their newborn babies, they're frustrated and they shake the child. If I don't know as a neighbor and I hear the child, I should have the moral campus 
to be able to report why can our legislation not take a moral obligation and equate it to a legal obligation mm, because absolutely. we're living in a society where children cannot speak for themselves but i think um another issue goes to what is considered where do children fall and that's where we need to have this conversation we have often spoken about accessing the justice system needs an adult to activate absolutely. it children cannot activate the system for themselves if I, as an adult, are the abuser, I am not going to activate the system on behalf of a child. And the next door neighbor, because culture tells me what happens at point B is at point B's business. I have no business interfering in your household. Even we see it with gender-based violence as well. Mm -hmm. If your husband is doing something to you, that's your marital issue. There is no reason for me to intervene. And I think that's the era that we have that is letting children down. So we are calling for amendments to Section 110. But on top of that, it should then extend. It should extend to every environment that has a child. If I am an aunt and I see something wrong, if I am a neighbor and I see something wrong, if I am a security guard, a teller at checkers, and I see something wrong, I should be sensitized enough to be moved to want to go and intervene. So we are calling not only for the amendment, but for community engagement mm. to inform the amendment. Again, it goes to our point of privilege. We are calling for the amendment because we understand certain things. Mm. Maybe what government needs to do and what the legislature needs to do is we have this law, part one, we saw again in the Carltonville crash abuse case, part one wasn't even adhered to. The people who are abusing children were caregivers listed Absolutely. by name. So what is happening? Why does society overlook what legislation says? Firstly, towards physical abuse. Then we've got sexual abuse cases. And then we look at how the court process treats those, even when they have been reported. We have Alexander, that is a perfect example of how sexual abuse cases are minimized even during the court process, even after somebody has responded. So the issue is not the legislation alone. Mm. The mm -hmm. perpetrators Absolutely. on the ground, the victims on the ground, community on the ground needs to be engaged. The president called for, for gender-based violence to be taken seriously. We're saying, okay, we're taking gender-based violence seriously. It's still happening. Even then, where are the children? So in all so of this, true. there are no children's voices. And that is the problem with the legislation, not even if it pertains to sexual abuse, even to physical abuse, even to neglect. There are no children speaking about what they need. So that's so important, Nga, and I think another thing that Luke taught me, it's all about what Luke has taught both you and I, <laughs> is the upstand and the bystand effect. So, so often you, you hear a neighbor's child crying or you see the child is, you can see if a child's been neglected. You can see, you know, their the, the eyes tell such a story. And you always think, well, somebody else will tell, somebody else will tell. And my challenge to everybody listening is you be the person to tell. Now, if you're the person to tell, where do you start? Who do you pick up the phone to? Who do you, who do you reach out to? Both you and Luke know the system so, so well. I don't know the system well at all. If I had a problem, I'd phone Luke, but not everybody has access to Luke. So as a, an upstander, and let us all be upstanders, where do I start, whether it be sexual abuse, whether it be um, gender-based violence, whether it be neglect, who do I phone? That is a very good question. So I used to be under the impression that you phone the police first. 
What I have learned in our work is you phone a child protection organization mm. like Women and Men Against Child Abuse, you phone Department of Social Development because they're custodian of the Children's Act and the rights of children. And then you go to the police. Everything eventually goes, that is if it's a, if it's a criminal case. You have to contact child protection organizations. They are equipped, they are mandated to protect the children. But it goes back to the failure of the system. If I don't feel obligated as a, a representative of a child protection organization to take seriously what you bring before me, we are not going to get anywhere. Again, be an upstander. If somebody doesn't feel the obligation to protect a child, I honestly don't think that we get to we, we can do anything to protect children. And interestingly, you said that it links to what I said about children's voices. Correct me if I am wrong. I think it was last year or the year before that children wrote to the president about what they need. In nowhere did I see a response that said we will give you a hotline dedicated to you as a child to report. Nowhere did I see a response that says we are going to empower CPOs to be able to respond to the high volumes of abuse. Nowhere did I see that Department of Social Development is going to be strengthened to be able to handle this. Because we, we have to look at where do we find the children and how can we help the children thereafter. Um, I, one of the issues is, for example, if you report to a CPO like us, and Let's just unpack that acronym. I know we're, oh, a, we're an industry full of acronyms and people still say, what are you talking about, CPO? Absolutely. A CPO is a child protection organization. Um, so if you are a child protection organization, we are working with children that need to be placed. Here is child A, mother has been convicted of murder and need, the child has no guardian. Where do they go? Mm. What is the conversation around that? How is our system equipped to handle that? They may call Luke because Luke is all-knowing and he's got connections. <laughs> but like you said, nobody has, it's not everyone who has access to Luke. We, we would like to see that community-based organizations, child protection organizations, civil society organizations who receive issues affecting children are equipped to do something. Where do you send the child? The mother's about to be sentenced, where do you send the child? The mother killed the sibling, where do you send the child? We had a case, um, the accused, I believe his last name was DeFries, his child was living with him. When he was convicted, there was nowhere to put the child. And we went physically to go and assist. We appointed the social worker from the Boxburg Clinic to go and assist us, but that is the role of the state. And why did you wait until he was convicted? Surely during the process, why, why, why was, if he'd already killed one child, why on earth did he have access to another child? That's These bizarre. These are the questions that we have to ask. These are the questions that we have to ask. And we only know of, say, a percentage, if I am being hopeful, of children who are being abused behind closed doors. It's only a percentage. Mm -hmm. And those children can't access our resources to report themselves. Again, Mr. President, where are the resources to respond to children who are in need? How do we identify them and locate them? It goes back to how do we sensitize people to be able to be motivated to respond mm. when children need help. Mm. So we're heading towards the 365 days of activism. 
which are now what they call the 16 days of activism, but we know is our 365 days. For Children's Day, what is the big message you would like to land? Because us as adults, we are the duty bearers. And often what I see with adults is they say children are given too many rights and because they've got too many rights, they're like badly behaved. And there's all this kind of rhetoric around it. And we know that Article 28 of our Constitution gives children rights that we as the duty bearers must do. It's not for the children to do. So if you're going to land one message for Children's Day, what message do you want to land? Well, firstly, if you as an adult have a lot of rights, equally a child should have just as many rights. And I think the bigger message is it is the responsibility of society because we know for a fact that the justice system, the systems in place are not protecting children the way that they should. Everybody should take the responsibility to protect children as a community, as an individual. It is the responsibility of all of us. You spoke about Ubuntu. Mm. It takes a village to raise a child. Equally, it takes a village to kill a child. If we keep quiet, children will suffer. If we speak up, children can be protected. If you tell the issues that you are encountering that cause you to harm children, you can be helped and children can be protected. So the role of everyone is, it's not just Article 28. We are looking at the rights of children, the Convention on the Rights of Children. We need to look at the bigger picture in all of this. Children must be visible. Children must be heard. We can no longer imagine as adults what children need when we now understand from psychology that children can express themselves. You mentioned in, 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 in the Carltonville case that the language of childhood is behavior. So let's be sensitive to the behavior of children. Let's take time out to observe children. If we need to put them in play therapy groups to be able to, 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 to observe what they need, then so be it. That's what we need to do. But the responsibility should not be on the legislature alone. Mm. The responsibility should be on every single it's, person. It's up to all of us. It really is. Absolutely. Luke, as we end off, I, I know we could speak to Nga for days and days and days, and I, I really would love to have you back because... The messaging is so important and there's so many nuggets that we can take out of this and things that we can learn. Luke, what is your closing message for Universal Children's Day? What can we as adults do better? Because we really, we're not doing, we're not doing well at all. I mean, it sounds a bit trite, but we must remember that children's occupation is play. So we are there to facilitate that. And children are seen almost too much as like projects that parents need to do. And I see parents not enjoying their children and not enjoying parents like a mission. And if we do not enjoy our children, they will not enjoy their childhood. So we are there as the mother birds who are taking in this very complex world and we're digesting it for children, feeding it back to them in a digestible way. And if you feed it back as something that is... Uh, hard and a mission and dangerous and all of this kind of thing children will grow up with that perception and what we want very simplistically is enjoy your children mm. and play mm. and listen listen god gave you two ears two eyes and one mouth for a reason you should observe and listen four times more than you talk indeed Inga, it has been such a pleasure. I really hope to have you back soon, soon, so we can unpack so much more that needs to be unpacked. Thank you so much for joining us on Society Superheroes. Thank you very much for the invitation. It has been 
Good. <laughs> Absolutely. And our next podcast is on World AIDS Day, which is Tuesday, the 1st of December. And we're in conversation with Sharon Gordon. Please do subscribe today so that you don't miss a conversation.